Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. I hope our listeners enjoyed our podcast on Brexit with um, Chris Gray, which we published on Wednesday. Um, I certainly enjoy doing it. And every time I talk to Chris, I certainly enjoy the experience. A very knowledgeable guy. Uh, But moving on to today's podcast, what I want to talk about, there is a NCB annual conference going on in Sintra outside Lisbon in Portugal. So some interesting stuff coming out of that from Christine Lagarde regarding European interest rates. Um, the IMF first deputy managing director, Gita Gopanath, was talking about inflation and the three uncomfortable truths for monetary policy. Um, we've had a lot of purchasing managers indices from the euro area and the UK over the last few days. So I just would like to just mark what's happening there um, in terms of what's telling what it's telling us about the balance between growth in the service sector and the manufacturing sector, because there is a, a pretty strong divergence there in sector performance. So I think it's worth talking about that because it does feed into what Christine Lagarde was talking about in Centra. We had German house price inflation data out late last week. Uh, which was quite significant. I can see a smile on your face because um, it's clear that higher interest rates are having a significant impact on the German housing market. Uh, But that's a debate that will rage. Um, And also we're, we're seeing some lending data out of the euro area that I think is worth tying into the whole 
interest rate and inflation debate. And then we've had inflation in Italy and Australia. And I'd just like to very quickly talk about the Italian and the Australian inflation, uh, both out today. Um, Italian inflation has fallen to 6.4%, which is the lowest in 14 months. Australian inflation has fallen to a 13 month low of 5.6%. So it's quite clear that the ongoing downward trend in headline inflation continues everywhere. Starting off, Chris, with the Christine Lagarde speech in Sintra, you know, she basically was saying that the European Central Bank must persist with high interest rates to prevent inflation remaining above its 2% target due to tight labour markets and big wage increases. And she does admit that the ECB has made significant progress in addressing high inflation, but there is further to go. So that's quite consistent with everything else we've seen from the European Central Bank. Uh, the probability that we will see a quarter percent increase in interest rates in July and probably the same again in September. So the Eurozone um, interest rate cycle continues to move in an upward direction. But at the same ECB conference in Sintra, the IMF first deputy managing director, Gita Gopinath, was he presented a paper called The Three Uncomfortable Truths for Monetary Policy. Uh, one is that inflation is taking too long to get back to target and the central banks must remain committed despite slower economic growth. That's one challenge. The second challenge is that financial stress could generate tensions between the central bank's price and financial stability objectives. Um, I presume that's a reference to the, uh, well, it, it is a reference, I don't presume, it is a reference to the impact that higher interest rates are having on uh, the banking sector around the world. And we've seen that highlighted, obviously, in the United States. But the third point, I think, is more interesting, where he's saying, you know, central banks are facing more upside risk than prior to COVID. And he specifically says that, you know, in the face of rising labor costs, firms must allow their profit margins, which have shot up over the past two years, to decline and absorb some of the expected rise in labor costs. And this is alluding to a discussion that we've had a few times on this podcast about the role that corporate profit margins are playing in the whole inflation dynamic across the world. It's Europe, it's the UK, it's the United States, it's 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 virtually everywhere. So I, I thought interesting comments that I think um, warrant a little bit of discussion. Yes, I'm not sure the comments are fully backed up by the IMF's research that it has also published uh, a couple of days ago. And this research looks at the importance of import prices and domestic profits in the context of Eurozone inflation. So this is of relevance to Ireland, much less relevance to the UK, although some headline writers in the UK have taken a read across from this and we've got lots of greedflation uh, headlines. A lot of people uh, claiming that these results are not quite what they say and that they apply to the UK. I'll come back to the, to the UK in a minute. Research shows that uh, nearly half of the inflation in Europe is accounted for by domestic profits. And that says, I think, a couple of things. One, that Europe's 
companies have at the very least maintained their profit margins in the aggregate as a result alongside the higher inflation so they haven't shared the pain i know individual businesses will start jumping up and down and saying that's not true but these are aggregate numbers and that that bold headline of saying that nearly half of the inflation is profit margins is very sectoral it's going to be a lot of energy and energy related companies who have hidden margin well i don't know about hidden but they have performed margin increases on the back of these higher energy prices um, it, it, in many cases it's not well hidden at all which is why we've had all these windfall taxes um, if the stuff that you've got in the ground suddenly goes up in price then that you previously paid a very low price for then your profit margin by definition by arithmetic goes up I don't think it says that, for example, retailers are gouging us. They might be, but this evidence doesn't say that they are. The UK side of the story is very interesting because some economists today have tried to replicate this euro area evidence, and they say it's much weaker for the UK than it is in Europe. So to the extent that it's a problem, it seems to be a European or an EU euro area problem than it is a UK one. So... I do think that there is a story here. It is one of uh, high profit margins in certain sectors, at the very least, and we think we know where they are. Um, the, despite the volatility in natural gas prices over the course of the last few weeks, they certainly have stopped going down, and on certain days they've been going up by double-digit percentage points and then going down again. So they're hovering at around €34 Euros per megawatt hour. Um, that's 90% down on where they were at their peak and 70, 75% down on where they were a year ago. My electricity bills are only going down 17% on July the 1st. So I think there's, there's a, all sorts of stories going on there. There is profits inflation. It's very sector specific. It's more Eurozone than the UK. And generally speaking, Companies have either increased their profit margins as a result of sitting on uh, high reserves of energy and just selling them at higher prices. I don't think it's an economy-wide thing. Um, but thirdly, there is evidence to suggest that companies haven't, as the IMF said, shared the pain equally. Uh, it's only tentative evidence, and I know several people have taken issue even with that. So it is a story of profit margins, but it is more nuanced more complicated than the headline writers who've been quick to talk about greedflation would suggest. I suspect there are plenty of businesses out there, particularly in the hospitality area, who would say emphatically that there is no greedflation. So it's almost a business by business thing. The energy companies are making out like bandits, Jim. There's no doubt about that. You say it's the headline. I read the speech that the guy delivered and that's exactly what he said, that firms must allow their profit margins, which have shot up over the past two years, to decline. Um, so I think the that guy in the IMF um, is probably reflecting that IMF research um, a little bit incorrectly. But uh, yeah, I don't think from if you look at it from a stock market investing point of view, if profit margins had shot up generally in the way that he suggests, I would have thought that we would be seeing higher stock prices, share prices than we are actually seeing. Yeah. That said, the stock market isn't doing too badly. And I think the stock market, to the extent that it's sending out any kind of information about this, is consistent with that story of, at the very least, maintained profit margins. It's not consistent with profit margins having shot up. 
if you thought the profit margins, if you think the data is yet to come in to show that profit margins have increased, because the IMF research, I don't think shows this economy-wide profit gouging thing. If you thought that the data was about to show that, or if you thought that it has actually happened, same thing, the stock market might well be looking through it and saying um, that's temporary. And that's why stock prices haven't shot up with profit margins, because normally profits and share prices are very highly correlated, particularly if profit increases are deemed by the stock market to be sustainable. So either it hasn't happened at all in the way the IMF guy and the headline writers have said, or the stock market is looking through it. So there's no evidence from the stock market to say that there have been sustained increases in profit margins is the short way of... uh, uh, describing what I've spent too long talking about. No, no, that, that, that's fair enough. And of course, how all of this feeds into the future of interest rates is interesting. Um, and as I say, Christine Lagarde was basically saying the ECB has to persist with high interest rates and will is likely to increase interest rates further. No surprises there. The real economic impact of those higher interest rates is certainly feeding through the system. Um, Today, we got data on bank lending in the euro area, and in the year to May, lending to households was up 2.1% year on year. This is the lowest growth rate since December 2016, and lending to companies in the year to May up by 4%. This is the slowest rate of growth since November 2021. So no surprises there. Uh, Higher interest rates are impacting on the growth in credit. There is no suggestion that the slower growth in credit is due to supply problems. It's it's really down to demand, or at least that would be my interpretation, because, as you know, there have been fears that credit conditions would tighten following the U.S. banking problems and also uh, the collapse of Credit Suisse First Boston, albeit for different reasons than interest rates. But there was a fear that all of those factors would lead to a significant tightening of credit conditions. But my interpretation is that it is slower demand rather than a supply side problem. Then if we move on and look at the Eurozone um, purchasing managers indices, uh, purchasing managers indices, we explain again, uh, it's an important confidence indicator for the business sector. Um, It's a diffusion index, meaning that a reading above 50 means that more companies are expanding than contracting. A reading below 50 means that more companies are contracting than expanding. So it is a good monitor for what's happening at a particular point in time. And also, uh, there is a forward-looking element to it. But anyway, the composite purchasing managed index for the euro area fell from 52.8 to 50.3 in June, still expanding, but the rate of expansion is slowing significantly and it is coming dangerously close to the 50 level. Um, But as is the case in most economies, um, and and is certainly reflected in what central bankers are saying, service sector is the problem because service sector, um, it did weaken from 55.1 to 52.4, but it is still proving quite strong. Manufacturing, on the other hand, continues to decline sharply, Um, a decline from 44.8 to 43.6. Okay, so manufacturing very definitely contracting. And of course, a key part of that contraction in the euro area is Germany. The composite personally managed index for Germany fell from 53.9 to 50.8. 
manufacturing fell from 43.2 to 41, but services declined from 57.2 to 54.1. Sorry about throwing all these statistics out, but I think it, it is indicating slowing economic activity. It is also indicating that there is still relative strength in the service sector and the, the weakness is really concentrated on the manufacturing sector at the moment. But the higher interest rates starting to find their way into service sector activity as well. So I, I suppose this all lines up with what um, Christine Lagarde was saying and the IMF guy, that regardless of the impact on economic activity, the fight against inflation is going to win out. And another area where this is obviously feeding through is the latest German house price data. Um, German house prices in the first quarter declined by 6.8%. That was the fastest rate of decline since the series started in 2000. So, you know, it's, it's quite clear that higher interest rates and weaker economic growth are having a significant impact on German house prices. Yeah, and also on UK house prices, because only today we've had some, albeit anecdotal-ish evidence, it is evidence, from UK estate agencies that collate this sort of data. This is not part of the official price series, but uh, some of them out there report on uh, changes in asking prices. When houses are for sale, what's actually happening to what homeowners who are trying to sell are doing to their listed asking prices. And in the last few days and weeks, they're reporting today that asking prices have been chopped by about 5%, which is pretty chunky if it is actually true. And that's reported to be a direct response to higher interest rates, to the surprise 50 basis point, half a point increase that we had the other week. And I would expect more of this to come. I do think that the interest rate sensitivity of the housing market will be shown up over the course of the next year or so, particularly in the UK, which has the highest inflation problem and the highest, therefore, interest rate problem. So I do think that the housing market, as always in the business cycle, is going to play a big role going forward. And I also more generally reiterate my remarks about where we're going with all of this. I think particularly in Europe, including the UK, there is now a determination to raise interest rates beyond the point where they should because they're in panic mode, uh, they're in headless chicken mode, particularly here in the UK where they've lost control of the inflation process. I do think that inflation is going to come down all of its own accord over the next while because of what they've done already and the lagged effects of that. I think what's emerging is evidence that Certainly, economies are less interest rate sensitive than they were. That's the sense in which our models of inflation are wrong. Um, but I don't think that our economies are interest rate insensitive full stop. I suspect what we'll find, and this will take years to prove, is that not that our economies are more interest rate insensitive, it's just that the lags have grown longer. And that's got tied up with things like the fixed rate mortgage and other similar ideas. So I still think particularly in Europe and the UK, that we are going to get an economic, a real economic problem caused by interest rates being put up to too high a level. That's a view I've had for some time. Uh, I guess the Eurozone recession, technical and small though it was in the earlier part of this year, is part of the reason why I say that, because they are 
still gung-ho about interest rates, even though economic activity at both the GDP level and some of those indicators that you talked about there, the PMIs, are consistent with the notion, I think, that things are slowing down, Um, not falling off a cliff, but they are slowing down in the way that they should, following past rate rises. So I ask the question, why are you continuing on this rate rising path? I don't think the actual underlying inflation numbers justify what you are doing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I know, I agree, agree, Chris, but... uh doesn't matter what I think or indeed what you think. Um, Central banks are adamant that they're going to keep going. So further tightening and anybody listening to this podcast, um, certainly in an Irish context, should build in the probability that rates are going to rise by at least another half percent over the coming months. Um, And likewise, I think for for UK listeners, uh, the Bank of England is going to continue to increase interest rates. And Yes, Chris. Um, In terms of interest rate sensitivity, we've got an example of a non-housing interest rate sensitive sector in danger of going belly up. A very, very important sector here in the UK today. It's called water, the provision of water to UK consumers and industry. And there is a big water company called Thames Water that is rumoured, as we speak, to be uh, in danger of having an emergency nationalisation. Now, water was privatized in the Thatcherite era, actually. Mid-late 80s to the early 90s was when it all happened. So it was a long time ago. And when all these water companies were privatized, were sold to the private sector, they didn't have any debt. And today, in aggregate, they've got £53 billion sterling of debt. Since they've been privatized, they have issued all this debt, Have they spent it on investing in the country's infrastructure? A bit, but certainly not as much as they could and should have. Um, Investment has gone up. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the big thing that's gone up since privatisation, remember, they borrowed £53 billion, is that they've paid out to their shareholders £72 billion in dividends. Now, this is a classic private equity trick. I'm not saying that all private equity companies are like this. I don't want to paint them all with the same brush. But in the particular case of the water utilities, the country's important infrastructure, private equity, in my opinion, have behaved disgracefully. But don't just take my opinion for it. Consider what the uh, venerable Lex column of the Financial Times is saying about this today. Uh, 
If water is life, then life has been pretty good for those that keep Britain's taps flowing. None has done better out of Thatcherite liberalisation than private owners of water utilities, including UK pension funds. Thames Water, the one in danger of an emergency nationalisation, in other words, a taxpayer-funded bailout, has sprung a cash leak. The snap departure of CEO Sarah Bentley sparked talk of renationalisation today. Previous owners Macquarie, now Macquarie are an Australian investment bank, um, Previous owners, Macquarie, which helped grow Thames Water's large debt, debt pile, deserves blame. This is where the rubber hits the road, Jim. The combination of a natural monopoly, cheap debt and a weak regulator made water utilities ripe for low-risk, juicy returns. Thames Water, the largest, now teeters on the brink because of, you guessed it, rising interest rates and a 14 billion debt pile. So I repeat something that I always say, everything is connected to everything else. When we talk about higher interest rates, it's not just about the consequences for housing. Here we have a sector, a big important sector in the UK economy that is uh, in a lot of trouble, and one company in particular. What has actually happened to investing in Britain's water is that they do do some. It's wrong to say that they don't replace sewers and upgrade things, but Today, as well as this information about um, uh, the possible nationalisation of Thames Water, uh, we were told that over the next few years, in, in order to meet pollution targets, the water companies have asked the regulator for a 40% increase in water charges, which in here in the UK, not in Ireland, um, we all have to pay. And if you look at the investment data, which has been kindly supplied to me by an old friend of this podcast, Ben, and he tweeted a nice chart today, which showed that investment after privatization did go up a bit. Not a huge amount, but it did go up. Um, but after going up for the following 25 years, it stayed roughly constant in 25, in, for the 25 years, it stayed roughly constant in real terms. And that's at a time when it should have gone up, not stayed constant. The population grew, the problems grew, and the needs of our climate for better water infrastructure also grew. So I think that they've been asleep at the wheel. And I think that the uh, private equity companies that own, uh, largely own, not entirely, these companies have behaved as private equity companies often do. It's a simple picture, um, sometimes verging on simplistic. There are some very good private equity owners of businesses that run them as businesses and try to make them better businesses. There are some private equity companies that buy a business, load it up with debt, pay themselves a huge dividend and move off into the sunset. And um, I do Macquarie it stands accused by Lex here of doing precisely that because Macquarie used to own Thames Water um, and after they loaded it with debt and took big dividends, off they went, they sold it off. So there's a lot of financial uh, shenanigans going on here, nothing illegal, um, but I do think that it's interesting that they've lost a CEO already. I think that the boards of these companies, uh, by and large, deserve, at the very least, some very serious questions. I think a lot of them should be fired um, because they have let the country down badly. But it's not just the boards of these companies, of course. It's the way in which they were privatized in the first place and then subsequently regulated. Yeah. They have run rings around the regulator. And this is a familiar story. I think that running rings around the regulator is a story for energy. I think that uh, energy regulation, certainly in the UK, is hopeless. 
uh, by and large, honourable exceptions, I'm sure, but um, my own domestic bills speak to the hopelessness of energy regulation, in my opinion. And I know that you and I so many times over the years have talked about the great financial crisis and the way in which financial institutions during that period ran rings around the regulator. The, the, the story of hopeless regulation is a particular example, particularly in the UK, of how governance is just rubbish. Uh, when you have a governing class in the UK, and I know I sound like a broken record here, but it pops up all over the place in obvious ways and less obvious ways. It popped up and drove Brexit, and it's popping up here um, in the case of uh, very dull water regulation that's going to hit every single person in the UK in their pockets. When you have a governing class that A, is not interested in governing, that has grown up uh, in the same bubble of private schools, PPE at Oxford, Conservative Central Office, and then the Cabinet or the senior ranks of the civil service or both, this is what you get. You get cardboard, cardboard cutout individuals who've, who don't worry about their water bills or any other kind of bill, to be honest, uh, running things uh, for fun, not in any serious way. And that is the story of Brexit, and it's a story of water, and it's so many other stories. So, Chris, um, you, on, you, you, you are giving the impression there that privatisation is a dystopian hell. I mean, we didn't privatise water here. And, and despite the claims from some that that's all we want to do is privatise water, there was no suggestion from anybody that that's the direction we were going in. Uh, but nevertheless, water charges did not see the light of day. But so we didn't privatise it. It is owned by the state. And yet it is pretty dysfunctional as well. There is a distinct lack of investment. The water infrastructure is creaking badly. And um, water supply for new is a major constraint on delivering new housing development, because I speak to developers who have to wait up to 12 months to get water supply connected to developments. So are you really suggesting that this problem is all down to privatization, that if the state is in control, that things are going to be better? Jim, Jim, I think you are putting words in my mouth. To be perfectly honest, I am talking about a particular privatization. I didn't mention anything about all privatization. As a good economist, I suspect you would agree with me fully that we're indifferent to who owns um, natural monopolies like water companies, provided these uh, entities are regulated properly. Whether they're owned by the public sector, whether they're owned by the private sector, they have to be regulated and therefore run and therefore governed in a way that makes sense. And natural monopolies are very tricky things to handle for both the public and the private sector, which is why regulation and governance are so incredibly important. Some privatizations there have been great experiences with. Some privatizations, like the one for water in the UK, have been an absolute disaster. And so it's horses for courses. I don't think there's a general rule. I think that I was working in the Treasury when a lot of these things were being sold off. And I know that the analysis says that provided you get the regulation right and the taxpayer gets the correct price when these companies are sold off, you should be indifferent as to whether the public or the private sector owns them because they they should end up being run in exactly the same way for the same financial and other benefits uh, for all stakeholders. That's a very, very tricky thing 
to actually achieve, to execute in practice, it's very easy to write down on paper what should happen, which is why you've got to be very, very careful about this. But what you don't do is sell to, to companies that just were only interested in loading these companies with debt, using the proceeds of that debt to pay themselves big, fat, juicy dividends, and then to walk away. That's a simplistic story, I know, but it contains a huge element of truth. And the fact that these clowns running the great institutions of state in the UK allowed this to happen is consistent with all the other nonsense that they get up to, which essentially is non-governance these days. We don't have a system that works anymore because we don't have anybody that's any good running anything anymore. Uh, there was an opinion poll out this week which showed that, that, that when shown the statement, Britain doesn't work anymore, question mark, a majority of respondents for the first time are now saying, yes, it doesn't work anymore, uh, rather than the other way around. The, the sense in which things are just falling apart, with honourable exceptions, um, is palpable now in the UK. And in that regard, I'm running out of time, so I won't go through it in any detail. There's a wonderful article by Robert Shrimsley in the FT this week, which talks about the upcoming general election sometime in the next 12, 15 months, probably. And it be, it's entitled, Britain is being primed for a hopeless election. He says that it's possible the UK will look back on the next election campaign as the hopeless election, a contest between two parties for the support of voters who do not believe either will materially improve their lives or the country. The lack of hope is palpable. People feel battered by inflation, falling living standards, strikes, public service crises, and a general sense of decline. And to quote Aaron Sorkin, which is what he does, voters feel they're going to be asked to choose between the lesser of who cares. Because these clowns, these privately educated PPE degree wearing Oxford graduates um, are hopeless. They don't care. And they, they're just interested in playing their games with, with each other. And that during the recent shenanigans over Boris Johnson's departure from Parliament, um, there was a text reported to have been sent from, uh, from Johnson to Sunak saying, uh, Eton always beats Winchester. That's a reference to the two schools that respectively Johnson and Sunak went to two very elite private schools and it was two people, one a prime minister, one an ex-prime minister, sending a message to the other talking about their school days and the battles that they used to fight back then and replicating them in the corridors of power today. Ridiculous stuff, playground stuff, but that's the way the UK is run these days by cardboard cutout, two-dimensional, at best, people who really have no experience of the kind of problems and issues that Trimsley just listed and I witter on about all the time. So there. Great, Chris. We'll leave it there. Good to talk. Thanks, Jim. Speak again. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. hope you enjoyed it our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple 
and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 